morning. As Joe said, my name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here, and we have been studying through the life of Abraham this fall. We are watching how God engages people as they live out their faith in a world that doesn't always share their faith. And one of the things that you discover as you read these more historical sections of Scripture is that God's people are not always on the same page that God is on. In fact, God's people oftentimes undermine what God is doing. They either don't have faith in him and his plan, or they have their own agenda. And so they act in ways that are contrary to what he's doing. Part of what you see in the life of Abraham is God stepping into those faithless moments. And as he steps into them, he redeems them. There are times where his plan seems to hang by a thread, and yet because of his involvement, that thread is strong enough to rescue them and to give them an eternal future of joy with him. That's essential for you and me this morning, because every single one of us in this room has had different times where we have acted contrary to God's plans. You have done that, I've done that, we've all done that. We've all wanted things at times that were counter to what God wanted. Something seemed more glorious at some point. Something was more important to us than what God was doing. And because we want that thing, we acted in ways that actually put his greater plans and his good for us at risk, if you want to say it that way. And God's response in those moments is not to keep himself safely tucked away in heaven. He doesn't sit up there wringing his hands and and moaning over how we've screwed everything up. He doesn't throw a little temper tantrum. What does he do? He rolls up his sleeves and he gets involved in our lives, often doing that without a lot of fanfare, in order to do for us what we need so that our lives get back on track. That's what you just heard uh, from Genesis chapter 16 as Joe read it. It's a chapter where God's plans are about to be derailed. It's a chapter where God's people want things other than what he wants, and their desires nearly push his agenda over a cliff. And I want you to see this morning. I want you to pay attention to how easy it is to be out of step with what God is doing. But we're not going to end our focus there. I also want you to see even more how God responds to his people in those moments, those moments when they're out of step with him, how he doesn't blow up at them, how he doesn't run away, how he doesn't go look for somebody else instead of them, but how he enters into their world to give them what they have to have in order that they are then on the same page as he is. Genesis chapter 16, Abram's wife Sarai has this plan, and it's just doomed from the start. Everybody at that point in time should have known that. Remember from last week how God told Abram, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to reward you. And Abram says, okay, that's nice, but what can you give me? I'm childless. Anything that you give me is simply going to go to my servant, Eliezer of Damascus. And God says to him, no, you're going to have descendants that are greater than the number of the stars. This man, Eliezer, is not good enough for my promises. He will not be your heir. Now, if Abram's servant in chapter 15 is not good enough for God's promises, then Sarai's servant in chapter 16 isn't good enough either. It's one of those first little subtle clues that something's wrong with what she wants. Another indicator is that Hagar is an Egyptian. That's something that we as moderns might just sort of skip right over top of. We live in a multicultural, multi-ethnic setting. So, okay, she's an Egyptian. Big deal. doesn't really bother us. But you have to remember who the first hearers of this passage are, who the first readers of it are. They're Israelites who came out of Egypt. And they know Egypt as this land of suffering, this land of death. And so you can imagine them cringing as they realize that Sarai's plan is for the promised child to come from Egypt. 
Third hint, however, is just the faithlessness that's shot throughout the entire passage. Sarai starts that off in verse 2. She says to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. We need to get something out of the way before we go any further. We're going to stumble over it all morning long. The issue in this passage is not immorality. This is something that's taking place about 4,100 years ago from our present social location. And the temptation for us as moderns is to look at it and go, okay, the real problem here is sleeping with the slave that's immorality. That's the problem. Actually, in their day, there were social codes that said if a woman could not bear children for her husband, it was okay for her to take a servant and give her to her husband, and any children that came out of that union would then be counted as hers. In fact, there were some marriage contracts where it wasn't just okay, it was required, it was stipulated. If you do not have children, here's what you must do. Think of it sort of as a pre-modern form of surrogacy. So the problem here is not immorality. I said earlier, it's faithlessness. How do you see that? Look at what Sarai is focused on. She's focused on having a family, and she wants that family now, and it's for her. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. She's had God make this amazing promise to her husband. You're going to have more descendants than you can act, count, more descendants than there are stars in the sky. And because she's married to Abram at the time of that promise, it's reasonable for her to have some expectation that, that promise is also to her. God says earlier in the first couple chapters of Genesis that a husband and wife are no longer simply two individuals. They're what? They are one flesh. They are a unit. So a promise made to Abram in some sense is also a promise made to Sarai, which means now she has this conundrum. On the one hand, she's got this amazing promise given to her by God. On the other hand, she's got reality. I'm 76 years old. At this time, my husband's 86. We're running out of time. You can forget the biological clock running. That stopped ticking a long time ago. I'm not sure we're even going to be here much longer. And in that moment, notice what her thoughts are not. Her thoughts are not, boy, I can't wait to see how God pulls this off. I wonder how he's going to do this. I wonder how he's going to amaze us, how we're going to be in awe of him, how we'll be praising him for, for years. I can't wait to see him glorified as he brings about his plans to rescue humanity through what he's promised us. She's not thinking about that. She's thinking, I need to do something here in order to make this happen. And in that moment, she's no longer thinking about the glory of God. Something else has captured her. She wants a family. She wants the glory of herself in that moment. And on one level, it makes complete sense. It was, in her culture, shameful for a wife not to have a family. And so this idea, this promised blessing, this good thing that God has said he would give her has captured her mind, taken over, and she's now made it not an important thing, but the most important thing. Something that if she doesn't have, life is just not worth living anymore. And so she's no longer depending on God, no longer depending on his character. Instead, she's depending on her plan to get what she wants. And you have to see at this moment, it is so easy to take good things and elevate them to a level where they're no longer good things. They become what? They become idols. Things that you think you absolutely have to have or life isn't worth living. It's faithlessness. Abram, however, is also faithless. And in this chapter, he's really out of character. 
As we've been reading through the book of Genesis, what have we noticed? We've noticed Abram is a man of action, and he's a man who talks. When he doesn't understand something, he starts a conversation. Suddenly in Genesis 16, he goes passive, and he goes silent. This is the place where a husband needs to step into his wife's life and say, hey, look, we have to hang on to the promises of God here. That's really important. Let's go back to God. Let's ask him to give us the courage and the faith to keep believing that he will be faithful to everything that he said he would do. Abram doesn't do that. He simply goes along with Sarai's plan. He sleeps with Hagar, and she conceives. Now, up to this point, Hagar has basically been a non-participant in her own story. She's not doing things as much as things are done to her. She's given to Abram. He sleeps with her. She conceives. All of those are what? They're all passive activities. Now that she's pregnant, she becomes very active. But it's not a good activity. She takes her new status, and she begins to despise Sarai. She treats her with contempt. And again, you have to put yourself into this pre-modern context. What's just happened here? She's been given to Abram as his second wife, but she's the wife who can give him children. She's the wife who can give him descendants. And so she now looks down on Sarai. And she basically says, I can give Abram what you can't. I can replace you. I'm better than you. In other words, she thinks her status is just raised up in the world. She's just been given a promotion. And she uses that movement not to bless someone else, but to hurt them. You're not told what it is that she does to treat Sarah with, with contempt, but it's really bad, given Sarah's uh, response, and you realize she's heavily provoking her here. Back to Sarai. She put this scheme together for her own glory. Hagar stole her glory. To make matters worse, her husband doesn't seem to care. And so Sarah does what I think is normal when you and I are faced with this kind of situation. She looks outside of herself around and she says, there must be somebody to blame here. And she finds Abram, verse 5, and says essentially, you are responsible for what I'm suffering. And in her mind, in that moment, that just makes sense. So much sense, she never pauses. She doesn't say, wait a minute, is, is there something here that I need to take a look at? Abram did what I told him to do. Maybe there's a problem with what I asked for. Maybe there's a problem with what I've wanted out of all of this. Maybe the problem isn't so much Abram. Maybe it's that I've wanted something and I've wanted it too much. But that thought doesn't occur to her. She's not thinking like a person of faith. What's a person of faith do in this moment? A person of faith reminds themselves, even when they've done something wrong, God loves me. God cares about me. He's rescued me from all of my failures. That gives me this absolutely solid, secure position that I can then start to ask self-reflective questions. I can ask, did I have a part in this? Did I mess up somewhere? Because if I did, I need to see that. I'm going to need to repent over that. There may be consequences. There are going to be things that I need to do. But the first step to straightening this mess out is wondering, is there something here for me? Sarah, I can't afford to do that. She's put her hope and her trust into having her own family, not into God bringing her into his family. And so she doesn't have the security, the ability to take an honest look at herself. And once again, Abram is of absolutely no help to her. 
He does not step into her world at this moment and say, look, we're really going down a bad road here. We need to get off of this road. We need to get back on track with what God is doing. We have this amazing God. He's led us really well all these years. He's given us these incredible promises. Please, let's run to him together. Instead, Abram looks at the marital discord in front of him, and he says to himself, I want nothing to do with this. I don't want to deal with my wife when she's unhappy. I didn't sign up for that. All I want is a quiet life. I just want to be left alone. And so Abram punts, doesn't call his wife back to faith. He thinks this is a mess, and I don't want to pay what it's going to cost to straighten it out. Let the pregnant woman pay. He says to Sarai, verse 6, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. And the pregnant woman pays a horrific cost. Finish the verse. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. Make sure you get the full impact of dealt harshly. Don't read over that really quickly. How's Hagar respond to this harsh dealing? She responds by fleeing into the wilderness. This pregnant woman alone. She has no protection. She's at the mercy of anyone who wants to do anything to her. She's at the mercy of any wild animal that comes across her. She has no one to help her if anything does happen to her. She has no food. She has no water. She runs to this place where, realistically, what can she expect? She can expect to die. It's probably going to be a pretty unpleasant death. And she prefers that option to spending one more moment in the tent with Sarai. What Sarai was doing was well beyond evil. It was horrific abuse. And again, if you're an early Israelite, this really hits you. Because you remember that you had masters in Egypt who dealt so harshly with you that your only hope was to run away. Where? Into the wilderness. Here the tables are turned. It's the Egyptian who's running away because she's been so badly abused by an Israelite. This is the depth that Sarai has sunk to. She doesn't trust God to guard her reputation or her place in the family. She puts her confidence in what she can do and ends up destroying someone else's life. Now, you look at each one of those three individuals, and you cannot find one thing that one of them does that's praiseworthy. Not a single one reaches out to God in faith to deal with any of the hardships of life. They don't reach out to God to deal with the shame, to deal with the barrenness, to deal with the arrogance, to deal with the complaining, to deal with the abuse. Instead, what is happening here? Each one of them is trusting something outside themselves other than God to get them through life. They have something that they've set their heart on, they've set their mind on, something that God has not given them. And they want that thing so badly that it ends up ruining their lives ruins their life, personally ruins the lives of the people around them. And they all collude to rip this community of faith apart. And God says, you need to see that. That's why it's here in Scripture. You need to see that because you know that you're just like that. I'm just like that. You've had times where you've set your heart on something outside yourself. Something that you just had to have, and it captured you. And because it captured you that badly, you didn't care about faith in that moment. You didn't care about what it would cost anybody else. 
And the worst part, I think, of those moments, worst part for me, is the regret that comes afterward. When you are processing that after the fact and you think, man, I really blew that. I, I don't think we're on plan A anymore. I think we're now plan B. Or depending on how bad is CDEF. Now, what do you need in those moments? Those moments when you've been faithless. What do you need when everyone around you has been faithless, when the community has torn itself apart? What you don't need is simply to focus on how bad you've been. Nobody has ever generated goodness by becoming an expert in their own badness. What you need is a great God who will step into the middle of that and bring his goodness. You need a God to come rescue you. You need a God who stays faithful even when you're not. Faithful to you, yes, but faithful to something even bigger. Faithful to his plans for you. It's exactly the God that Abram has, but no one has been reaching out to him. So now watch what God does. How is he going to get their attention? Call them back to faith. He does it relationally. Look at the first thing he does. Verse 7, he moves toward Hagar. Notice here, he does not go to Abram. Doesn't say to Abram, look, we've got a problem here. You need to go sort this out. Instead, he goes off to the one who's suffering. And he does not insist that Hagar take that first step and reach out to him. He reaches out to her. The first words here are not hers, they're his. Now, don't get too hung up here on who this angel of the Lord is that you first get introduced to in verse 7. By verse 13, Hagar knows this is God that I'm talking to. This is not simply a messenger of God. This is some manifestation of God himself. And what is she realizing here? She's learning that God is not simply the creator of everything that there is. He's not simply the sustainer of everything that there is. He's what? He's the redeemer of everything that there is. He steps into these moments of faithlessness personally. He's the one who enters into broken people's lives to help them and to care. And one of the first ways that you see that is by how he approaches her. He calls her, verse 8, Hagar. He names her. Look back through verses 1 through 6, and you'll discover there that nobody talks to her by name. Everybody considers her an extension of the household. She's a servant. She's a function for people that she lives with. She's either my servant or your servant. God's the first one to call her Hagar. In other words, he's not pulling up alongside her in the wilderness because he's interested in a function. He's not looking for a servant. He's looking for a person. He's looking for an image of God, an image of God with whom he can relate, an image of God with whom he can interact. It's a really big deal that he calls her Hagar. The Old Testament professor Bruce Waltke tells us that in all of the Near Eastern literature, this is the only mention of any deity calling a woman by name. God's saying, do you see how unique I am? Do you see how special I am? There isn't anybody else in the universe like me. I care about people. I know who they are. I know who you are. I know your name. Do you have that sense that God knows your name? Do you have that experience? Have you had that lately? That sense that even if everybody else around you doesn't think that you're very special, he knows your name? That in those moments when you're suffering, he knows your name. You're not forgotten. That in those times when you've sinned, where you have had a hand in creating your own problems, when you think that you're all by yourself, when you've had to run, 
He knows your name. But it's not abstract information for him. It's personal. When he knows your name, he comes looking for you. And when he comes looking for you, he does so to interact with you. Look at what he says there. In verse 8, he asks her a question. You think, boy, that's really strange. I thought God was all-knowing. He shouldn't have to ask a question, right? Verse 8, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? It's not only odd that he asks a question, it's odd that he asks this question. Apparently, he already knows that she is Hagar, servant of Sarai. That tells you where she's come from. She's come from Sarai's tent. In other words, he doesn't need the information. He's not asking for his sake, but she's the only other one out there. He's asking this question, what? For her sake. To open up a dialogue, to start an interaction. He wants to have a back and forth with her. He's come looking for a person to engage with. Doesn't come to lecture her. Comes to treat her with dignity and respect. That is so different from how everybody else treats this lady. Nobody talks to her. They talk about her. They do things to her. Nobody engages her. God does. She has absolutely no place in his plan of redemption, his plan for rescuing all of humanity. In fact, she's messed things up pretty badly with her attitude. She's upset the whole household by despising Sarai, and God does not despise her. He engages her. He draws her out. He gives her the dignity that she wouldn't give to anybody else. It's amazing the way that he interacts. But then he says something shocking. He says, verse 9, return to your mistress and submit to her. Return. Go back. Go back to the place of suffering. Go back to the place of misery. Go back to the place that you ran away from because you thought that death was preferable. I think that cannot be what she wanted to hear. It's probably not what you want to hear this morning either, that God says stuff like that. You think this is who our God is? This is the one that we were just singing to? If you're not a Christian this morning, that probably offends you. If you are a Christian that, this morning, that probably offends you. You just don't want to say that. You think, wow, if, if this is really God, do, do, do I really want a whole lot more of this Christian thing? It's understandable that you would think like that. So let me say first that the Bible is not teaching here, underline that, the Bible is not teaching that if you've been abused, you should go back into that situation. Hagar's situation is utterly unique. She's been given an utterly unique word from God that he has not given to you. And the word that God has given her is not, go back and be abused some more. Okay, think about the, the larger biblical teaching on our responsibility to protect and defend those who are most vulnerable in our society, those who are most at risk. Think about the things that God says about how we treat the widow, the orphan, and the alien, and you realize that he is not telling her, go back and just let them mistreat you. Let them take advantage of you. Think, okay, God, well, then what are you saying? Verse 10, he adds, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. You think, man, that, that sounds an awful lot like the promise that he gave to Abraham. That's the thing that God's already promised. What's God just done? God's just said, part of my promise to Abram is going to come true through you. Other people treat you as a servant. Other people mistreat you. I'm not going to do either. 
You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to wrap you into my plans. You who have no place in them, you don't need to worry about going back to the tent with Sarai because I'm obligating myself to go with you. You're going to end up with too many descendants that count. That means you're going to live. And in order for you to have that kind of future, I will be guarding you in the present moment. I will be involved with you. And then he gives her something that will help build her faith, something that's going to happen multiple times a day, something that she's going to be required to meditate on. He tells her, you're going to have a child, and you need to give this child a name. It's going to be a boy. I want you to name him Ishmael. Literally, that means God hears. Or as God explains, the Lord has listened to your affliction. And so every time she calls out to her son, Ishmael, Ishmael, it's a reminder of God's presence in her life right now and in the life of the community. Every single day, this community is now going to build their faith. They're going to call out multiple times a day, God hears, God hears, and they're going to be reminding themselves, he's here right now, and he listens to those who are afflicted. He's involved. God's just given her a way of understanding. He has obligated to himself to her lifelong. And this one conversation utterly transforms her life. You can hear it in terms of what comes out of her mouth. She used to gloat about being pregnant because of the status it gave her. That's not what fills her mind anymore. She doesn't talk about it. What she talks about is God. You realize that he is the one now who has filled her mind. He's entered into her world, and that entry has refocused her. She's now focused on God, and she's reveling in him. She can hardly believe what he's revealed about himself to her, that he sees her. And she understands something about him that she didn't understand before, that his seeing is special, that it moves him toward the person that he sees. He's not put off by her. He's not offended at her. He sees her and he cares about her. It's so amazing to her that she turns around, verse 13, and gives him a name. Nobody else in scripture does that. She calls him, you are a God of seeing. Truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. You have a special kind of seeing, God. You're not seeing for entertainment value. You're not watching live TV here. You're not looking for something of interest. You're not looking for something to distract you. You're not casually observing. Instead, when God sees, he moves. And he moves toward her. And she's starting to realize that God has taken his infinite power and all of his wisdom, and he's using it on, what? on her behalf. He sees her. He moves toward her. It's a personal God, and so what does she do? She engages with him personally. And this ought to amaze you because she's on the bottom rung of the social ladder of her day. You know that the rungs change with every society and every time, but on, in her day, she's at the bottom. She's a female in a patriarchal society, strike one. She's an Egyptian, not an Israelite, strike two. She's not a free person, she's a servant, strike three. It'd be hard to get any lower on the scale of her day than she already is, and God does what? He comes to her. He hears her misery. He sees her. He acts to give her hope and a future. This is who your God is. 
he engages people, enters their life, doesn't matter what their social status is, doesn't matter what they've done. He says, you're not on the bottom in my eyes. I'm not offended at what you've done so that I don't want anything to do with you. I'm not leaving you. It's incredibly powerful to her to, to realize this, but it's not a, an intellectual idea that she's now excited about. Instead, she acts on what she knows. This is knowledge that changes her. She retraces her steps. She goes back to where Abram and Sarai were. And she has no guarantee at this moment that life's going to be different. Realize faith does not take away your hardships. What does faith do? It convinces you that God will walk through those hardships with you and that his being there with you will be enough to change you on the inside so that you engage those hardships in a way that is functional, not dysfunctional. In this moment, Hagar knows something that I'd be willing to bet every single one of us in this room struggles with. She knows something that actually I think probably some of you don't believe. Certainly our friends and our neighbors don't believe it. She knows that things like happiness, joy, positive outlook on life, peace, those things don't come from the outside world in. They don't come because you finally got everything in life that you ever wanted. She knows that your attitude as, walk, as you walk through life does not depend on having the stars aligned for you or having things sorted out the way that you were hoping that they would be sorted out. She knows that those things come from what? From knowing that you're special to the Lord. If you know that he sees you and pursues you and comes to you and obligates himself to you, you will be joyful. You will be optimistic, even when life is not what you want. This lady has nothing going for her. Previously, she's been abused by the people of God. Her future, she's been promised she's going to have a son that everybody's going to have trouble with. She has problems in the past. She has problems in the future. But she's not the same person. She approaches life with this whole new attitude. She's different. She's absolutely amazed that God would notice her. Absolutely amazed that God would say, I'm going to stay with you. She's willing to go back because she now knows that she matters to him personally. How do you get that amazement back if you've lost it? How do you get that if you find yourself fixated on something outside of you? Something that you think has to be different in life. Something that you think, well, if you had, would actually be the source of joy for you. Something that if you could just make happen, then life truly would be worth living. But something that you've not been able to work out and, and not been able to make happen. And consequently, you're, you're not full of joy. And if we ask your friends, they'll tell us that you're not. They know it. They know the times where you just approach life with more frustration than joy, or when you're anxious and when you're worried. They know how cranky you can be, how you approach life with an edge, or, or how you approach people with an edge. How do you get that wonder and amazement back if you've lost it? The wonder and amazement that doesn't have to have life be the way you want it to be. How do you have that amazement if you've never had it? You have to go to the source. You have to go to this living God. You have to talk to him. You need to tell him that you've been looking for something in life other than him, something that you thought would be more special than him. In other words, you engage him like you would engage anybody else that you've wronged. 
hey, this is how we fix relationships, right? We go to somebody and we say, I'm so sorry that I've messed things up between us, and I did that because I valued something else more than I valued you. That's the first step of repentance with a person. It's the first step of repentance with God. You don't come to God and say, here's all the things that I've done wrong, and I need you to help me fix them so that then you and I can be good. Those things are going to need to get addressed. But you start with, God, those things were more important to me than you were. And I'm so sorry that I valued the creation more than I valued the creator. Why wouldn't you say something like that to him? Do you think he doesn't know that you valued something more than you valued him? Do you think he doesn't care that you're miserable in the, th in the way that you're living life? Or maybe you're like the man that I spoke with earlier this past week. You grew up in such a way that you kind of are reluctant to go to God because you know that you caused that mess. And so you have this idea that I dug the hole, I have to fill it in order to actually be able to come to God. Do you see how this passage pushes against all of those fears? How it shows you a God who pursues people out into the wilderness, someone who is not at the center of what he's doing in the world. You can come to this God. You can talk with him. You see his heart. You see the way that he is willing to engage you. He doesn't leave people stuck in their faithlessness. He works in them. Their attitudes change. Their actions change. Their lives change. Think again about Hagar. She goes back because she's convinced that God will go with her. But she doesn't go back, put her head down, and just sort of keep this to herself. Instead, she does something really special. She now talks to the people of God. She talks to Abram and Sarah. She talks to them about who God is. And you say, wait a minute, but I, I, I don't remember hearing that in the passage. Look again at verse 15. Hagar has this baby. Who is it that names the baby? It's not Sarai, because this is not her family. It's not Hagar, it's Abram. And Abram calls the child Ishmael, the name that God said to call him. But God said that not to Abram, God said that to Hagar. How does Abram know to actually call this child Ishmael? Hagar had to come back and say, hey, let me tell you about this God that we've talked about before. This is what he's really like. This is how he engages people. And she unpacks this whole conversation that she and God were the only ones that they had. And it's now in your scripture. Because God says, that's really important for you to know about me. And you know it's not a fable because the Israelites would not put something in there from a female Egyptian servant unless it was really true. This amazing lady comes back and nourishes the people of God. She's blessing them with the way that God has blessed her. That's what happens when God transforms your world. You can't stop yourself from letting other people know, here's who this God is in my life. Here's the kinds of things that he's done. He enters into really, really broken situations, and he rescues the people in them. I love this chapter. It's an amazing story. Having God intervene in this dysfunctional community is amazing. And yet, it's not enough. It sets the stage for the future, yes, but what about the past? What do you do about the past? Do you just sort of leave that and go on? Pretend it didn't happen? 
ignore that there's any kind of fallout? What about the past? What about Sarah's scheming and her abuse? What about Hagar's attitude and her arrogance? What about Abram's apathy? What about the underlying faithlessness inside of each one of them that drove all of those things? What takes care of the past? What, what takes care of the things inside of these people that caused that past? Because you realize that if you don't take care of those things, guess what? They're not just going to be in the past. They're going to recreate the past in the present and then in the future. I want something more than that. I don't want a future that's all ripped up and ruined. I don't want a future that's destroyed by failures. I don't want a, a, a future that's always creating horrible memories. I don't want to be a person who simply leaves this trail of bodies in my wake, both in the past and in the future. I don't want to be in a community that just litters the ground with bodies. I don't want to be in a community where we can't resolve things, where the solution to problems is take that skeleton, put it in the closet, close the door. When we fill up the closet, we'll get another one. It's not good enough. God hears that's fantastic. It's exactly what Abram, Sarai, and Hagar needed. But his hearing is not enough because this is a scarred community. They need more than someone who hears. They need someone who can take what was wrong and make it right. They need someone who can take faithless people and make them faithful. None of these people can make up for what they've done. Ishmael's not going to be any better. <laughs> the Lord prophesies about him in verse 12 that he'll be a wild donkey of a man. His hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. He's going to have exactly the same problem that all of them do. He's going to be hostile to them, same ways that they've been hostile to each other. He's going to be good at bringing hostility. He's not going to be good at removing it. And that's why even though he is a promised child, God promised Hagar that she would have this child. He's a promised child, but he's not the promised child. So what did this early community of faith have to do? They had to live by faith. Their faith looked forward. Our faith looks back. But we're both looking at that same thing. We're looking for that one who will enter into the community from the outside with a completely different DNA. That one who will take faithless people and make them faithful. And it's not going to be Ishmael. He's not good enough to be Abram's heir. Instead, this child of promise still needs to come. Isaac needs to come. And Isaac needs to come so that Jacob can come. And Jacob needs to come so that Judah can come. And Judah needs to come so that one day Boaz will come, who will raise Obed, who will father Jesse, who will father David, and then from whom they will start that long line of descent of all the kings until Jesus comes. And Jesus needs to come, this child of promise, because the goal is not Let's build a family for Sarai. The goal is, let's build a family for God. And if that's the goal, then the child that Hagar carries is not good enough. But the child that God plans is good enough. And God brings that child not because his people are so faithful and so good at being in line with him. God brings that child because he's good at entering into lives even when we're not good. And this morning, that's the God that you have. The God who sees you, who comes to you, who wants to interact with you, who obligates himself to you. 
to guarantee you a future with him forever. Let me pray for us.